0: Are you or anyone else you know interested in buying or selling a home? How about saving the planet? Climate Change Realty is the only company operating in all 50 states that allows you to create thousands of dollars in donations absolutely for free. Yes, that's right. Our service and your donations are free. Climate Change Realty can connect you with one of the best real estate agents in your city. And because of that connection, a full 25% of your real estate agent's commissions will be donated to a 501c3 nonprofit organization of your choice. Real estate agents earn between 2 to 3% of the final sales price when they help you buy or sell a home. That's at least $500 donated for every $100,000 worth of real estate sold when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. Visit www.ccrboulder.com today and click Find an Agent to help us transform the real estate market into a battery for the regenerative economy. Welcome to the podcast. Miguel, great to meet you, man. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited for the chat.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Ethan.
0: Yeah, you're very welcome. And this is a topic that I've been looking to cover for a while, and I'm excited to have you because you're a real expert on this topic. So I think this is going to be really fun and really um, beneficial for people who have never discussed or even know what a mangrove is. So before we get into the science of it, I just wanted to get a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing this, this work over the years.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, uh, Ethan. So, yes, my name is Miguel Cifuentes. Uh, I, I, I was born Ecuadorian, grew up in the Galapagos Islands. Uh, my, my father was the director of, of the Galapagos National Park. And having grown in the Galapagos, I, it's clear to me now that shaped my view of the world and my involvement with, with nature and, and conservation. At at one point we moved to, to Costa Rica. My father had his uh, got his graduate degree here, and the Galapagos Islands that I remember or where I grew up was very dry. Everything's rocky. They're volcanic islands. And moving to Costa Rica, it just blew my mind. Everything's green. It rains like in enormous amounts of uh, of water through the through the seasons. So that change just completely. Finished my or started my real fascination with with nature. Why why do things happen, and why are things different, and and so I embarked on a on a science career. Um, back when I went to college, there was no natural resources management degree, which is what I wanted to, to become over over time. So I went into forest engineering. Uh, there was a time where I could design bridges and roads and and and, and harvest timber sustainably, uh, but my first job. Was actually a research job with uh, with OTS, the Organization for Tropical Studies. I manage a a long-term ecosystem research project there, and uh, that hooked me with uh, with the science science world. The asking asking questions and figuring out complex problems at the ecosystem level, and very this was back in the mid mid early '90s, and climate change was was a new New hot topic by then, and I remember uh, attending a few a few talks from from you know uh, expert scientists that would come uh, come through uh, La Selva La Selva Biological Station in, in Costa Rica to do their their research and they shared their experience and their concern about global climate change global warming we used to call it that, uh, back then and the idea of trying to tackle such a large issue. Uh, completely fascinated, took over my life. I went to I went on to uh, graduate school in, in the U.S. went to North Carolina State, uh, forestry again, and then moved on to a PhD in environmental sciences at Oregon State University. But always uh, more and more strongly linked to to global change issues. And uh, you know, I've I've done a, a quite quite a few things along along the way. I used to work with a um uh, a, a large applied research center here in Costa Rica called CATIE. Uh, it's a combination of applied research center and graduate school. So I was a I was a graduate professor for over a little over th- 13 years. <laughs> uh, the time I still have uh, masters and PhD uh students that I that I work with and they're doing really cool research. Uh, but recently I've I've moved into into conservation, into working with Conservation International. And my rationale for that was I was I've been doing research for 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 a very long time. And a lot of what the research I was doing was applied in nature, trying to solve really complex uh, challenges for people on the ground to preserve their their natural ecosystems, strengthen their livelihoods. But a lot of that research felt constrained spatially, um, and part of that was the nature of the institution I was working in. And part of it was my realization that the global challenges that we're facing are, are that, they're, they're global. And we need to expand our actions, expand our impact. And Conservation International is the is leading uh, NGO that uh, focuses on those really large challenges. And so I, I, I saw in joining them a really good opportunity to uh Maybe influence action at that larger, larger scale, which is a fascinating uh, idea and topic, and I'm super excited to be, to be doing what I'm doing right now.
0: Definitely. So, what exactly does Conservation International focus on? What are like their their focal points that they try to drive action through? Uh huh.
1: Yes. So we, we, as I mentioned, we are we're a global nonprofit organization, and we protect nature for the benefit of people. So we. We, we center on, on people and, and providing them with, with services and with goods that come from, from nature. So as we protect the oceans, the land and the forest, uh, we are enabling or we're securing the provision of, of food, fresh water, uh, better livelihoods and stable climate for, for the entire humanity. And one of the really cool principles about Conservation International's work is that we we combine science and field work with um, with policy and finance mechanisms, and through that combination of, of work, we have helped protect uh, I don't know something a little over six million square kilometers. That's over two million square miles, probably if I do the
0: a lot of football yeah. fields.
1: A lot of football fields, that's for sure. Uh, and and we we yeah. have a global scope. We work in, in over seventy countries
0: now. Really, really cool. Yeah. So today, like I said, we're going to we're going to talk about mangroves and something that I find very curious is that when you think about talking about climate change or reforestation, there's a lot of discussion of specifically the Amazon rainforest and rainforests in general. But today I really want to talk about this idea of blue carbon. So you're also involved with this international blue carbon initiative, right? Can you kind of explain what blue carbon is and what the initiative is as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So Blue carbon is the the carbon that is captured by living organism, organisms in, in coastal ecosystems, in coastal and marine ecosystems. Right now, we're focusing on mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrasses, because those uh, we see are the ecosystems that are more amenable to, to management and, and, and to develop policy actions and conservation activities that will enable, enable us to uh, optimize the benefits, both climate benefits the livelihood benefits and the financial benefits from from their conservation and and restoration so these ecosystems have a very unique uh, capacity or potential to sequester re- really large amounts of, of co2 carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store that into their biomass and to their sediments so if I can give you some some numbers here and not bore that bore the audience uh, terrestrial forests uh, sequester, or they, they store up to 400, say 500 tons of carbon per hectare uh, as their maximum level of, of sequestration or, or, or accumulation. When we are dealing with mangroves, we have measured um, storage rates or storage amounts over 1,000 tons of carbon per hectare. So we're, we're talking at least wow. double the amount of carbon that these coastal marine ecosystems can sequester compared to terrestrial ecosystems.
0: Your dog's really excited about how much carbon we can store in the mangroves.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Can you that? <laughs> I, I had put my filter on. <laughs> sorry about that. I've, yeah, I, I thought I had muted. All, that, all that good. Background. <laughs> um, so, well, you know, I, 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 was, I was saying, you know, that there's, there is a, a considerable amount of carbon that these coastal marine ecosystems can, can sequester and for 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 many years we had ignored these coastal ecosystems as tools for addressing global global challenges and and this i think goes back to maybe the philosophical uh, conversation we were having uh, before we started um, you know what this. is what is out of sight is out of mind and we had focused there's this really large group of oceanographers and physical oceanographer people looking at how carbon is sequestered in the oceans and distributed all over the world, and then we have the terrestrial people. Uh, I was one of them. I'm still one of them, looking at terrestrial forests. And you know, we're as we're looking at the forest, and I'm looking at the forest outside my window. Um, we were giving you know whatever was on, on our backs we couldn't see, and then the oceanographers were just doing the same thing, looking at the water, the oceans and ignoring what was happening behind them. And there was this sandwiched ecosystem or set of ecosystems in between that had fallen in through the cracks. And what we what we realized uh, is that these ecosystems, one, they have this very high capacity for absorbing carbon. So they have a really strong role for carbon mitigation. But at the same time, because they're at the interface between oceans and water, they have very unique properties that, we can take advantage of to promote and, and secure uh, strong livelihoods for local communities. So these ecosystems provide, um, right? we're calling we're these ecosystem services and you know, uh, water filtration. Uh, they're, they're nurseries for commercial fisheries, uh, uh, fish species. They people harvest timber and other resources from them. They get their food from them. Some People around the world see these ecosystems as cultural places and spiritual places um, that are also provided. And because of the nature of them being near the the, the shore, they can also act as buffers from, from storms, from increasing sea level rise. And those are what we call adaptation services. So in a sense, these ecosystems protect people from the increasing negative impacts from from Climate change dynamics in in, in general. So we have all these different dimensions of of benefits uh, and properties that these ecosystems uh, can uh, or are actively providing to humanity, and we just needed to look at them more more closely. And from there, from that idea, uh, the the International Blue Carbon Initiative sparked uh, and started as, as as a way to organize all these ideas. And we are very we, we believe that by developing knowledge and sharing that knowledge, uh, we can inform decision making and actions on the ground and, uh, and influence positively the lives of people living in these coastal, coastal areas.
0: Yeah. And that's fantastic. So just, just to clarify, we're, what we're discussing is, by the way, in case people don't know, the largest carbon sink on the planet by far is the ocean. I'm correct on that, right? Yes, absolutely. So we were just discussing the terrestrial land, which is what all humans live on, unless you live on a cruise ship or something. But um And that has a lot of potential for carbon drawdown through uh, trees. We talk about boreal boreal or boreal forests and rainforests and soils can sequester carbon as well. And then the ocean takes sequesters carbon through phytoplankton and different things. But specifically, we're talking about, I love how you said that kind of the terrestrial um, research or people out in the field are looking at the ground and then the ocean conservationists are looking at the ocean. But there's this really interesting space in between. Where when you were talking about this, whatever a hectare is, um, you're talking about this space where (laughs) I'm just messing around. I know it's a European (laughs) measurement Um, um, right on the coastline. These specific and these are our plants that are specifically have evolved to live right next to the ocean and next to the land. That's those are the ones that specifically are able to sequester as much as two times as much as a, a terrestrial tree. Is that what you were saying?
1: Uh, twice or up to five times as much carbon,
0: and this is why we're we're, we're doing this podcast. Um, yeah. So when it comes to the issues we're facing, when it comes to conserving these lands, what what is currently threatening it right now, and and uh-huh. how can we kind of you know fix it?
1: I I, w- I would say following up on my on my previous idea, because these ecosystems have been largely ignored or just glossed over. In, in national policy and global global attention, they are highly threatened by land use change. So uh, the, the the coastal development model just sees these mangroves and seagrasses and other coastal ecosystems as a hindrance to developing large uh, tourism infrastructures, roads. Um, Agricultural expansion. So all these all these different uh, human activities or alternative human activities are encroaching into these coastal marine ecosystems. And we have large large areas of, of mangroves being lost to, through the, what we call this land use change process. So we see a mangrove area, but we want to build a hotel there. So the simple answer is just chop down the mangroves and build your build your building there. Um, you need to expand your your cattle raising operation.
0: What exactly is a mangrove? Oh, that is, we yeah we should have we should have addressed that first. <laughs> so yeah, no a, a
1: a single mangrove is 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 a is a tree uh, that is adapted to growing into waterlogged conditions, saltwater, uh, waterlogged conditions. So as the tides go up and down. And there's daily cycles uh, behind this. Uh, They flood areas near the coast. And as you know, and and, and our audience uh, is familiar with if you water a plant way too much, they drown mangroves as as a tree or a species or a type of forest have evolved over time to survive in these continuously waterlogged conditions. And seawater is is very salty (laughs) and and the sodium in 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 that uh, seawater is actually is normally toxic to terrestrial terrestrial plants and mangrove species and mangrove forests have evolved adaptations to exclude the sodium from being toxic so they have ways to capture that sodium separate it out and toss it out their their leaves for example so if you were to lick a mangrove leaf it's salty and you look at it against the, the 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 sun and you can see the salt crystals shine on the bottom of the of the leaf surface it's fascinating so you know they have all these all these different adaptations that have allowed them and continue to allow them to to thrive in an area where otherwise terrestrial plants would not be able to grow
0: i i th- I think people I mean should really recognize how truly spectacular an evolutionary feature that is to be able to I mean salt like Kills things. I mean, we literally use salt to like cook. Back in the day, we used to use salt to preserve things. Mm-hmm, that's absolutely mm-hmm. incredible that these mangroves can do this, and that's why they're such a a pivotal species to like regulating our our climate system. Like, it's just great. So, so back back on the topic of of conservation issues, I'm curious, like, where are the main areas where these species are growing, and then how does tori- how is tourism affecting that? Back on that that uh-huh. topic.
1: Yes. So these uh, the, the blue carbon ecosystems mangroves, uh, salt marshes and seagrasses are mostly tropical uh, types of ecosystems. So this this belt um, north and south of, of the equator uh, on Earth, where we have uh, larger amounts of, of sun sunlight, warmer temperatures, and more stable climate, that is where these ecosystems are usually found. Uh, some of them can expand uh, towards subtropical. Uh, conditions, climate conditions. So we have mangroves in, in southern Florida, for example, in Puerto Rico and things like that. But the, the largest areas of mangrove are in in Asia. And we have a lot of mangrove also in um, in the equ- equatorial zone of, of Africa. And then the Americas, the Caribbean, all the Caribbean coast uh, of, of the Caribbean basin, and then uh, also uh, Central Americas as well, going all the way up to Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula, and the Gulf of Mexico as well.
0: So there's a lot of them. It sounds like. There is... What kind of like trends are we? Go ahead.
1: Well, I, I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, you know, we have a lot of mangroves, but relatively speaking, they amount to about le- less than less than one percent of all the forests in in, in in the world. But the key, key uh, the key uh, thing here is to remember that although they are less than 1% of the total terrestrial forest area, they're able to sequester five times more carbon. And that's where, where things start clicking because every unit of area of mangrove that we lose, we're losing five times more carbon than if we were to lose that same unit of area on, on, a, on terrestrial land. And I, I just quickly look, looked up and a hectare is uh, 2.47 acres. <laughs>
0: right 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 nice oh now i know that in uh real estate terms acres i know that um there you go so what um what trends are we seeing in these mangrove forests it's very interesting that you say that they're one percent but they're a kind of like a, a focal point when it comes to carbon drawdown so are are we seeing like huge like recession like we are in other forests
1: the i'll start with the negative trend and then i'll i will i'll talk about the the way of Potentially reverting that. So over the last uh, decade or so, or even a little longer, we have lost more than 30% of all mangroves uh, globally. Uh, that is that is very alarming. When we talk about deforestation rates, yearly deforestation rates, anything beyond or, or greater than 2% deforestation rate is considered a high rate. And for mangroves, we've depending on where in the, on the planet you are, we have gone beyond a 4%. Yearly deforestation rate, so we're doubling the rate of loss that terrestrial uh, forests have. So that is one one concern that we have, and this is due to agricultural expansion, um, uh, shrimp farming. Uh, we you mentioned uh, oil palms uh, as well, cattle raising that goes into into the coastal areas, uh, commercial agriculture crops, uh, sugar cane, rice, and, and some other products that encroach onto that coastal and to those coastal areas, also draining of these coastal ecosystems to build roads, to build uh, all sorts of uh, human infrastructure, ports, uh, tourism infrastructure, all of these different human activities that are close to the coastal fringe uh, are encroaching actively and alarmingly into the natural areas where mangroves and other blue carbon ecosystems are, are currently living. The, the The good news here is that uh, restoration or ecological restoration of these ecosystems is is possible, and it's it, it's uh, it's increasing its, its traction uh, uh, at traction globally. Uh, one one very key difference between terrestrial restoration and blue carbon restoration is that we we have realized over over time that we cannot plant mangroves as if we were planting I don't know pine trees or other species in terrestrial forests. Because if we go back a few minutes in our our conversation, I I was relating how these mangrove ecosystems were adapted to uh, flooded conditions and and salty conditions. And so if we just go in an area and plant mangroves, we might be missing the mark for that ecological equilibrium that is optimum for for mangrove growth. So what we do now is we look at the hydrology of the sites and we work towards restoring that, uh, that hydrology. So how much seawater comes in and out of, of the area? How often? How long does it stay in the area? And how much, uh, how much the sea level, uh, floods that area? And we play with those variables to determine what would be the, mo- the most optimal species to grow. And, you know, it's fascinating to know that, that nature can fix itself. So by providing these degraded sites for areas where we formerly had mangroves and they were converted to something else, when we restore these ideal ecological conditions, nature comes in and we have really good success at recovering mangroves just by enabling these, these right ecological conditions. And we don't have to go in and plant mangroves as much as we used to do before. Um, and years ago we would go and plant huge amounts of uh, of mangroves, and most of them died because the hydrology wasn't right. So we've learned from that, and now we're we're working again to restore the, the natural conditions, and then uh, nature does does most of the most of the work. We still have to go back in and you know tweak the sides. Maybe we can get the hydrology exactly right the first time, so we need to uh, do some additional interventions or actually plant, but then it would be a reduced area.
0: How do you go about restoring hydrology to an area if that's specifically like ocean water flows? Isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah, it, it's really cool. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm a forest engineer, and I'm still fascinated by, by by machines. <laughs> uh, so it's really cool to and, and you know so people in in this space are are starting to talk about ecological engineering um, instead of us doing mangrove restoration we're we're engineering the site to recover to recover its ecological conditions and some of this depends on the amount of degradation that the site has suffered sometimes mangrove forests are are cut and for whatever reason the local people who did that end up not using that plant so that's very very little disturbance and then it's just easy to clean up the channels that bring water in and out of that site and again nature takes its course and uh the, the restoration of that site is relatively simple. There are other sites where, because of the type of intervention and the length of use of that of that area, um, the, the the ecological conditions are very much uh, destroyed. So I have I have this example. We have a a project in in the Pacific coast of Costa Rica, uh, close to the the city of Punta Arenas, where uh, we have a long long history of agricultural use in the upper mid and lower parts of the watershed uh, this was one of the first areas that the spanish uh, conquistadors came and and developed agriculturally it looks a little bit similar to parts of spain so they were used to those environments and they came in and and they you know they cut down the forest and they have they had cattle and they planted sugarcane and all these things but over hundreds of years those unsustainable agricultural practices have been feeding lots of eroded soil onto the coast. And that has been blocking the natural flow of seawater and freshwater that nurtures mangroves along this coastal marine fringe. So for the first time in, in history in Central America, we had to, to restore those sites, we actually had to use machinery, heavy machinery, so we had we had backhoes and, and bigger machines and, and flattening machines, moving tens of thousands of tons of material of of eroded material and sediment out of the site. We reshaped uh, the the natural channels. Fortunately, we had aerial photographs from back in the 1940s. So we knew where the the natural flows of the rivers were back then. So we we rebuilt. The rivers in that in that area and yeah this is fascinating just a couple of of weeks uh, let's say month a month or month and a half after we started doing that and the water actually started flowing back into the site we could see the seedlings of mangrove species already growing in there so you know there was there's this video where yeah I, i I, I kind of get sentimental with, with these things sometimes because nature is so fascinating. You know, we, We've degraded the site over 400 plus years and then you do something. You know, This takes a lot of effort and engineering design. But within a month and a half, you have like thousands of these little plants already colonizing the site. It's like, you know, like mind blown at the power of nature and its ability to heal itself if you uh, provide it with the, with the right conditions to come back. Amazing.
0: Yeah, that's that's really really awesome and heartening as well. Um, when it came to that specific project, where did the funding come for all that heavy machinery to go in and do that work?
1: We have a very generous donor uh, that is involved in, in in supporting this type of this type of work, and you know, being it a really innovative project, uh, this hasn't hadn't been done before in, in Central America or the Caribbean area. Uh, and, and to that to this magnitude so they were very generous with that and, and trustworthy and you know i think their 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 bet paid off because the, the project is a huge success right now we're, we're very happy we're actually starting to uh, talk to them about a second phase of that
0: project yeah i think that's great and it just goes to show that um we, in the past, we just haven't understood how ecosystems work and how essential they are to our, our life. And I think that because of the amazing work of people like you and conservationists and other scientists around the world, we're understanding the way these, these systems work and how we can interact with them. We just I'm always trying to figure out ways to uh, provide some sort of economic incentive to regenerate these areas. I really believe there's a lot of negative um Press and negative and pessimism surrounding our ecological situation, and fair enough, we're sucking up resources and degrading areas. But once you go back in and really focus on regeneration, we could actually come back out of this with even more life than back in 1800 or before. And that keeps me really optimistic and positive. Do you want to give me a, a brief synopsis of your most recent publication, which is specifically around aquaculture, shrimp ponds, and how that regulates the the mangrove soils?
1: yes um so maybe a, a, a bit of a bit of background uh mangroves sequester the atmospheric carbon both on on the what we call the biomass so the the tree trunks the branches and the seedlings and you know the the live material that we see above above ground but one of the unique features of mangrove and other blue carbon ecosystems is that in addition to that biomass sequestration they also Sequester and retain carbon in in the soil, in the in the sediments, and the amount of carbon in the soil is actually where where the gold mine is. We can we can have upwards of eighty, sometimes upwards of ninety five percent of the total ecosystem carbon stored in the soil, and not in the actual trees and plants. Um, so what happened? And, and these are highly organic soils. If, if you go into a mangrove. Uh, and, and to a mangrove forest, the, the sediment is really dark, uh, and that is that is a signal that it's rich in carbon, rich in in in, in organic matter. Uh, but it's since it's flooded, the microbes that would normally start decomposing that organic matter cannot work, and so that organic matter just keeps piling up over over centuries, millennia even, and uh, so we have this rich rich layer that goes many 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 meters deep uh what happens when the when mangroves are are cut down and drained is that this sediment is suddenly not flooded anymore it starts drying out and that allows for microbial activity to consume the organic matter and decompose it and then uh Emit CO2 into the atmosphere, release that CO2 that was in the contained in the soils onto the uh, onto the atmosphere, but just by decomposition, you know, microbes. That's that's what they do. Um, so when you convert or when people convert um, mangroves to other uses, and specifically shrimp farms in this case, we have this effect of a, a huge uh, loss of, of stored carbon into into the atmosphere. So what we have been doing or documenting now is exactly how much of that carbon comes and goes uh, across that but those dynamics of mangrove loss, conversion to shrimp farms, and then potentially regen- regeneration. And we've discovered that uh, shrimp farms and other other uh, productive "quote unquote" land uses that cut down mangroves uh, have a huge impact on on global global emissions. Uh, Shrimp farming is is a very highly profitable uh, activity uh, all around all around the world, and a lot of, of, of coastal communities and peoples depend upon this uh, this activity. So you know it's something that's, that's been done, and we are uh, we're we're actively working to better inform people about these these uh, impacts. We have within Conservation International and the Blue Climate Program that I'm currently leading, we have what what is called a climate smart shrimp initiative. And what we're doing with this is we're taking traditional shrimp farming, and we are uh, implementing new techniques that are enable to enable the the shrimp farmers to increase their productivity per unit area. So instead of expanding their operation, they can get as much, or even you know, I forget the exact statistic right now, but many more, uh, many more shrimp, or many more times the productive um the produ- their production in the same area but at the same time yes <laughs> but at the same time what we are also doing is integrating rest- mangrove restoration to those shrimp farm operations and this has this has multiple benefits you know we we we, we promote the regrowth of, of mangroves that protects the shrimp farm ponds from increasing storm action sea level rise flooding at the same time the effluence, the the wastewater from the shrimps. uh, instead of going straight into the ocean, they go through through the mangrove forest. The contaminants and the sediments get filtered out, and then the water that goes back into the ocean is cleaner or or clean. So we have that, you know, there's this shared benefits from nature into human activities. And we can we can use both systems preserve and even in some cases strengthen the livelihood and the income of people. Uh, doing shrimp farming. But at the same time, we're also uh, having really good impact on restoring nature and uh, using these mangrove ecosystems for both climate change mitigation, so uh, scrubbing CO2 off, off the atmosphere, but at the same time, we have the, the adaptation benefits, as, as we call it, you know We're helping local people adapt to greater sea level rise, stronger and more frequent uh, storms, uh, filtering of Water and contaminants, as as I was mentioning. So there's, as we as we continue to build on on this this new this new set of technologies, uh, I think we we see large opportunities to balance economic development and human well being with the conservation of, of of nature, both at the local scale and at the
0: global scale as well. I think that's absolutely fantastic, um, but I am wondering. If it came specifically to looking at uh, ecological restoration of the mangroves, would it be objectively better if there were no there were no shrimp farms at all, or is there a way that the shrimp farms can actually make it a larger, b- bring back more life potentially, or is it just kind of integrating that with the way the society works there or the business?
1: That that is a very keen
0: a very keen uh, question and, and comment
1: um Ethan i I, w- I would say of course the ideal the, the ideal situation would be to completely restore these ecosystems and have them go back to whatever their pristine condition was however you know th- this is a human dominated planet and people need to need to right. live and thrive and it's only fair that people who are developing or uh, these economic activities near the coastal zones they they also deserve their their income and their fair share and you know good good livelihood so we are well aware of that and i think the the years when um when the conservation movement just wanted people out of nature is is, is long gone and and you know uh, humans we are part of nature and so by integrating and balancing these these different pressures and benefits or, or co-benefits from integrating nature with uh, built infrastructure and economic activity. I think we can balance and promote the the, the benefits for both nature and and human.
0: I love that perspective. I, I just wanted to ask because I'm curious, but yeah, I know if it's a, only a marginal difference, you know, then it's really that it doesn't doesn't make much sense to completely remove livelihoods and and we know that that's not realistic anyways, but I' just trying to get an understanding of the way these ecosystems work. what why do you think there's such little press surrounding blue carbon and mangroves if they're these such rich carbon sinks? Uh, well,
1: I, I would say two things. One of them I think is is historical. Uh, Blue. We've been working on blue carbon for about a little over ten years, and uh, you know that's not a long time for some for some topics, especially when they come from the science. It takes a while for science to trickle down into into popular media. So that that I would think is uh, one reason. Uh, But I I would also say that we we are receiving increasing attention in 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 the press. Um, First of all, because as Global global change uh, uh, the global change challenges are increasing. Uh, nature as an essential climate change solution is is increasing its potential globally as well. And blue carbon in particular is one of those types of nature based solutions. Uh, back at, by the end of last year at the at the UNFCCC uh, meeting, the United Nations Framework Convention uh, for Climate Change meeting, we do this every year. Uh, Blue carbon was 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 all over the place. It was it was amazing. It was uh, I, I remember being at these at these meetings ten years ago, and and you know, only a handful of people were were in the audience when we did a, a side event or a presentation. And now you know people were just jam packed in these small COVID ridden <laughs> rooms. Awesome. And it was absolutely it was absolutely awesome. It's like okay, finally I think we've reached the tipping point of of people's attention. Uh, the 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 United uh, the UNFCCC uh, now has an Ocean Nexus uh, dialogue, where we have been able through through our scientific work and the policy advising and and the underground work that we're doing, we have finally um, gotten the UN the the UNFCCC the United Nations um, area or, or uh, bodies to realize how important. The ocean and the coastal ecosystems are to, to trying to fix the overall global uh, change dynamics or challenges that we're facing right now. So from that date on, I think there's an inflection to, uh, point, and we're seeing increasing uh, news coverage, which is, is just fascinating.
0: That's awesome, and what gets me so excited is I this show I talk to people I find interesting, like yourself, but I talk to people from all different backgrounds who are specifically usually aligned on this environmental issue and i keep hearing business trends voluntary carbon market now you're talking about blue carbon there's increasing interest in this space and i think that's pretty good for me cuz i'm in the climate real estate market so this whole area is blowing up yes. and this um climate doomism it's, we got to put an end to it because there's so many people who are really passionate and doing the amazing work we need. And I feel like we're going we're gonna to come together and make this happen like, like humans do. When it comes to talking to these government officials, like what specific advice do you give to them um, about protecting mangroves in, in coastal areas?
1: I, 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 I should say that I feel really fortunate to, to have been able to actually be part of those types of, of dialogues. Uh, one one challenge that, that scientists face a lot of the time is is translating our our results, our knowledge, and our passion in, in a subject onto uh, digestible tidbits that can lead to national and global action. And uh, by by being involved in blue in blue carbon, I, like I said, I, I feel enormously grateful. And fortunately, uh, fortunate to have been able to learn some of those abilities. So, you know, there is some science that needs to be shared. And I remember, I specifically remember this one meeting with, with the Costa Rican authorities, where after about six years of research, you know, I had amassed this enormous amount of, of, of data. And all of that, of course, was summarized in one graph. Uh, science can be built in that way. So, all of it, you know, half a lifetime. Of work was summarized in this one graph. But what that graph showed was the amount of carbon that is sequestered in in mangroves in Costa Rica, average of 800 to 1200 um, tons of carbon per hectare. And then the dynamics of those mangroves being converted to other uses, to agricultural lands and to uh, shrimp ponds. We have over a 94% loss of carbon when we, when, we, when we do that. And Costa Rica is a, is a leading um, climate champion all over the world. We, we have embarked on, on decarbonizing our, our economy. Uh, we were the first or one of the first countries uh, promoting carbon neutrality across, across the globe. And here we are with this greenhouse accounting debt uh, that we need to fix. So that was, it was a marvelous turning point where, where, you know, the policymakers I was talking at the moment is like, wait, we we cannot allow this to happen anymore. What do we do? I'm like, ah, glad you asked. <laughs> Here's mangroves. Uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's it sparked a whole new conversation and uh, it, it's been very interesting to be part of, part of all, all of, all of that process. So uh, you know, learning to communicate our messages to, to policymakers, to decision makers, and also um, you know, one of the one of the great things about the work that we do is that we have this tagline. You know, we, we put feet in the mud. <laughs> uh, so, to, you know, at the same time as, as we're working with 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 IPCC, with UN uh, bodies and national governments, we are also working on the ground, working with people, uh, trying to learn what their challenges are and how we can use this new and improved knowledge about coastal ecosystems to actually improve their livelihood because they depend on the stability of these ecosystems to to eat. And very early on, when I started working with, with blue carbon, I learned that, you know, you talk about blue carbon and climate change mitigation to a poor fisher in, in some God forgotten area in, in, a, in a third world country. And it, it doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense because they're worried about going out fishing that day and potentially returning without a catch and not being able to feed their family. So, you know, we have to be mindful of that, of that really extreme reality that people are facing. Millions of people, tens of millions of people are facing around the world. So when we are designing these blue carbon strategies and, and, and projects, we are strongly mindful of having to incorporate people and also finding solutions for them to have better livelihoods. And at the same time, you know, protecting the environment that would in turn provide them with, with the resources to, to live a better life.
0: Yeah. I mean, you just got me thinking, I don't usually think about this like most of us Americans do, but when you talk about 10 million people who need to go out and, and get food for their family and we're just throwing out 50% of our food in America, because it, it it's after the expiration date, it's despicable in my mind. But um, anyways, that has nothing to do with mangroves. Um, when so is it is it fair to say that this hydrological, if that's the word, like restoration, meaning removal of barriers to water flow, yeah. is like the most effective way to restore these landscapes? Is that I'm trying to make it simple for yes. like me to understand? Yes.
1: So, uh, j- just to re- recap, the mangroves and other uh, blue carbon ecosystems depend on on the exchange and the flow of seawater and fresh water you know, uh, along, along the coast. So whenever that is blocked or altered in, in some way, the the natural conditions that allow those ecosystems to thrive go away, and then the trees, mangrove trees start dying, uh, coral reefs uh, start dying because of sedimentation, etc. So now we realize that by bringing back those stable ecological conditions nature has its own ability to come back very quickly unless the damage that we've done to that ecosystem functioning is is beyond repair and then we have to give it a little push
0: Yeah, I mean, at least it still can be done. This has been so, so so great to hear from you. Um, Can you tell me a bit about the work you do for the IPCC before we kind of sign off here? Yes, of
1: course. Uh, So the the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. And uh, this is a group of thousands of of scientists all over the world. And what we do is we look at the current science, the latest science, and assess how, uh, how strong or robust it is regarding it. Related to all these different scientific issues uh, that are linked to to climate change and global change in in general. so I was uh, extremely humbled to be chosen as one of those uh, scientists. I participated in in the last we have within the IPCC we have cycles of review and some special reports on on very specific topics. so i was I was a lead author in in the special report on the oceans and the cryosphere. and for that report specifically, We'll look at the latest science um, that has been developed related to the relationship between global climate and oceans, and also the cryosphere. And the cryosphere is just very simply all the all the surface uh, around the world that is covered by, by ice. And and as you know, you know, as uh, global global temperatures have risen, the balance between snowfall, ice accumulation, and and thawing. Above of, uh, of that material is is off balance, so that is one one point of interest. Uh, the ocean, being so big, has the ability to absorb a lot of the the increased heat that uh, we have we have been putting uh, out in the, into the atmosphere into into the, the planet. So that causes effects physical water as it warms, it expands. So that's part of the reason why we have sea level rise. But it also has provided us with a buffering opportunity and and time to not suffer the worst effects or the potentially worst effects of climate change. So, uh, you know, we've gone through all this this process. It's it's a year, almost two years long process of gathering all this information, assessing it, uh, having these long discussions about the validity of the results, how strong the science is, what inferences uh, can we infer from those? What are the implications for in my case, for coastal communities, how we can use this knowledge to better improve and protect these communities, uh, restore ecosystems. Uh, so it, it's been a, an enormously privileged opportunity that I've that I've had, and it completely changed my 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 thinking about these uh, these problems. Before enrolling in into the IPCC, I used to focus on small scale problems and working with communities and small regions within Central America and the Caribbean. But then the IPCC allowed me to look at the, the global scope of, of the challenges that that we're facing, and and uh, commit myself to you know, going beyond these local uh, lo- local uh, places and actually work at trying to to create global impact with the type of work that that we do.
0: Definitely. So, were you like collecting like? like levels of the sea in different areas or what exactly like were you collecting data were you more like analyzing what was was given and been participating in like discourse?
1: so the what the ipcc does is it's it, it gathers already published information uh yeah oh, and okay. some of that information of course comes from from research that the ipcc members have done but it's not exclusive i mean we don't just look at our papers uh we look at Thousands. I mean, literally thousands of papers that are out there regarding the specific topics that we're looking at, and then the the special reports are arranged in in chapters, and each of those chapters looks at a specific issue. So there were about twenty of us looking at uh, at adaptation issues. So how, how do we deal with the effects of uh, increasing sea level rise, uh, stronger and more frequent storms? How we how do we look at that and Potentially present solutions to uh, to coastal communities. So that that was my role within that larger report. I was part of this one chapter looking at, at adaptation issues, and there were other people looking at the, the physics of, of ice formation and, and melting. There were others looking at the, the ocean physics and currents and how those change because of climate change, et cetera. Um, and together we you know we build this this, this report, and it it's a very It's fascinating. I'm I'm fascinated by scientific processes um, all the time. But you know, there's there's all these people, really smart people, working on uh, on these processes. And then we have what we call peer review, and that means whatever we come up with, uh, we share with scientific communities. And then it's not just a couple of hundred people working on the report. It's literally tens of thousands of really high level scientists looking at what we're saying with with eyeglasses on and, 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 and assessing whether we are right or wrong, whether they agree, the scientific community agrees, whether we can improve. And I remember, and, and we go through these cycles three times. And for, for the first draft, what we call a zero draft review. So the first pass at, at this report, we received over 80,000 comments just for the <sighs> chapter I was working. Alone, <laughs> you know, Whoa. right? And and because the the IPCC process is so exhausted, you have to look at every single one of those comments and respond to it. And some are are editorial; those are the easy ones. And it's like, uh-huh. I think you should have a comma here, or the proper term is not this, it's that. Fine, we fix that. But some others, you know, they're they're huge. They're huge writing. You know, half a you know half a page. Of the reasons why you're missing the mark on the assessment that you just did and 20 other references that you might have missed supporting or not supporting the points that you're making. And then you have to, you know, go read all those papers and consider and then with together with the group, come with uh come up with an agreement on how we're going to address this. Are we right? Are we not right? Is the evidence strong enough? Uh, can we say this? Can we say that? How confident are we? Um so it, it's a lot of work, but it's it's you know, it's, it's, it's a mission that you're on as, as a scientist and it's, it's a welcome, the welcome endeavor. And I, I'm, again, I'm really thankful that I was able to participate in that.
0: I'm so thankful that you were willing to participate in this podcast, man. Um, I'm so glad I asked that last question as well. Cause I always hear people are like, Oh, you know, we used, we used to think that the earth revolve or the, the sun revolved around the earth. So you can't trust scientists because sometimes they're wrong. But when you explain the rigor of the peer review process and the IPC process. It just goes to show like it is is not the 16th century, 15th century anymore. We have robust processes that can really be scrutinized to get to the best possible observation. And then of course, we still don't know nearly as much as we could, but um, I know a little bit more today thanks to you. So it's been really great having you. I always love to ask people at the end, any advice they have for young folks who are passionate about building a better world.
1: Well, uh, before I answer your your question, Ethan, I, I also would like to thank you for the opportunity to be here with you and in, in, in your podcast and your show. This has been, you know, lots of, lots of fun uh, to to be talking with you and, and sharing some of these tidbits. I, and I could go on for. I, I talk too much when I get excited about some topics. So I could go on for days, uh, but thank you very much for sharing. I hope uh, what little I have been able to share has been. Uh, useful and will be useful for for your audience. And specifically talking uh, to to the younger the younger audience uh, that, that was that was your question. I think two things. Um, the first is don't be scared about science. You know, people tend to say math is hard. No, not really. Uh, science is confusing. No, not really. What what a scientist is is a kid that never asked, never stopped asking questions. That is what a scientist is. So if you're one of those kids or young person who asks lots of questions and annoy people because you're always asking why, you're a scientist. Keep on doing that because that is what keeps knowledge advancing. That is what helps us find solutions to the most pressing challenges we're facing right now as a humanity and also helps us fix the little things as well. <laughs> uh, so you know, keep asking those questions, get yourself involved, and learning more about yourself, about the world and and, uh, and also the involvement is, is very important. I, I truly believe that individual actions, changing yourselves or ourselves and improving ourselves and the communities around us um, is the first step to actually you know addressing broader, more important issues as well. So you know don't don't leave this for others to fix. This is a shared responsibility that we all that we all have, and we're committed to fixing it.
0: Cool. Miguel, it's been great having you on the show, man. I really appreciate you Absolutely. taking the time, and I appreciate all the research. I appreciate all the research you're doing as well. And um, I just continue to have a lot of hope because um, of so many amazing people doing amazing things.
1: We, that humanity as a whole is is, is an amazing, I don't know organism <laughs> that keeps that keeps evolving. Indeed, and uh, yeah, we, despite. The, the challenges that we're facing right now, we cannot ar- allow ourselves to be uh, to be in, in a negative mood. I mean, we we can we can do this, however challenging it is. Uh, we will we will be able to fix this. So thank you very much.
0: I couldn't agree more. You're very welcome. I think it's all about where you you put your focus. So keep focusing on the positive. All right, everybody. We'll see you. Thank you. All.